Hello, my friends. Today we're talking to Dan, the SVP of technology at the DAC Group and president of Prove Intelligence. And we discuss how to use data analytics to illuminate the path forward rather than to just provide support for decisions you've already made. Why companies need to put more trust into their data and how to get buy-in from executives to make more data-driven decisions. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Well, tell me about your background, man. How'd you get into tech? So I'm, I grew up in Australia, actually. I've been in Canada since 2004. And uh, I've been born and raised in Adelaide, Australia. And uh, I got out of high school. I wasn't a great student. Didn't really enjoy school, but I loved computer sciences and found myself blitzing anything that was sort of scientifically inclined at school and everything else sort of fell by the wayside and was just sort of a disturbance to my otherwise very important day. <laughs> and then I, I, uh, I took on college after high, uh, after high school in information systems in like the early nineties. Uh, and then I got out of that and I got into, once, once I was done with that, I got into sales actually in the packaging industry just to sort of get a job. And this is like, you know, mid nineties and I was good at it, but I, man, I hated it. Like I really didn't enjoy it. And, and I learned about, you know, a little, I was very young still, but I've learned about business and, you know, relationships and uh, how to sort of grow confidence in, in a space that I wasn't super confident with the subject matter, but I had to kind of learn about how to deal with the people. And then, long story short, I got fired from my first job, uh, which after four years, because I just was, I was kind of just dialing it in. And I didn't, because I wasn't enjoying, I wasn't stimulated by it at all. So that kind of gave me a moment to sort of sit back and take stock of what was going on. And uh, shortly after that, you know, as the, everyone knows, mid and late 1990s, 98, 99, the internet became a thing. And it really, it was new and emerging. My studies hadn't really prepared me for HTTP and the web, doing programming in C plus and uh, that type of thing didn't really align. But fundamentally, I kind of had a real interest in that. So a, a very good friend of mine uh, named Michael Potter and I uh, started a business uh, doing web development and like doing websites for people. And it was funny; he was a musician as well. Uh, interestingly enough, a, a fantastic. <laughs> a guitar, like a session guitar player, fantastically talented man, uh, and a really, a really good person. And he and I kind of set about cracking, working out how to make the internet a business for, for just small businesses. And, and we started a small business. We rented, we started in his sort of basement uh, office, and then we moved out into a little studio and we got really good. We, we picked up, you know, e e built an e-commerce platform for a national sports retailer in the year 2000. And it was awful. I go back and think about it now, like by today's <laughs> standards, it was just terrible. But I did that and I, I got a great education in like the reality of putting this stuff together. I, we, built, we built an online auction catalog management system for a government surplus auction house uh, where the, the, the core... Uh, you'll lo you'll love this. the The driving KPI was reduction in photocopying costs. It wasn't about anything else because people would show up to the auction on auction day, and they would put their hand out for an inch thick 
auction catalog that these guys would have to crank out of their printer. And they said, hey, you know, most people have a computer at home, have access to the internet. What if they could go and view our catalog online, handpick the stuff they were interested in and print their own catalog and bring it in, just the stuff they were interested in. And then, and they saved like $45,000 a year in photocopying costs. And that made like the financial review, which is like the Wall Street Journal in Australia. And we got an article in the financial review about how we helped this auction house reduce printing costs. And again, I think, so really interesting by today's standards, when we think about the KPIs and the, the, the metrics driving digital business today and how different they are. But still, they were, there were metrics. There was a measurement. There was a reason for doing it back then. And it was, uh, it was super fun. And I remember selling the guy on the vision of that thing and then on the way home, stopping to buy ASP in a nutshell by O'Reilly, which is the book that was going to teach me how to do everything I just promised this guy I was going to do for him. <laughs> and then we went back to the studio, took our ties off and got to work. That kind of reminds me of... Um how you said that you got like a write-up in the Wall Street Journal about you improving this strange KPI. I actually saw, it was like last year, but a Wall Street Journal article on how Domino's pizza outperformed every tech stock because of the digital transformation that they went through mm-hmm, as a company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and like the efficiencies that this pizza shop got made their stock do better than like every tech company that year. Yeah. So that- yeah. It's a driving force. I mean, <laughs> like try to name, try to name an industry or a business that's not being driven by digitization and digital transformation. Right. And you'd be hard pressed, I think, to find one that's, that's worthy of a conversation that isn't directly connected to what's going on in the digital world and analytics and the, the relative inexpensive compute power today. Uh, it's driving so many, you know, it's driving so much uh, of our world for sure. So the the first company you were at uh, or th- that you founded was mm-hmm. basically like a an agency for like building yeah, an agency. whatever needed building, right? And that's and this is where I reflect on that. I'm like, man, if I could have a do over there, it would have been different because it wasn't. It, it was funny. It wasn't about the money. It was about learning how to do things. So we built a website and a scheduling calendar system for a gym. They didn't pay us money, but we got access to the gym for free. So we worked out every day. So we did so much stuff on barter and Contra and, and deals. You know, I drove a beautiful Honda prelude at the time because we did a dealership, a Honda, a chain of Honda dealerships. We did their website for them. We got them into the internet for the very first time, but there wasn't, it was kind of right around the dot com bubble, but in Australia, we were kind of insulated from that. It wasn't the same as it was out West in North America at the time. There was like hesitation and a little bit of sort of, it was this thing happening in the U S but in Australia, it was very, we were behind the curve a little bit. So people said, yeah, I'm interested in getting a website. It was more like having a digital brochure, like the kind of thing that you would otherwise have on your coffee table. That's what people wanted. And we brought some dynamism to that conversation and said, well, have you thought about doing this or adding this feature or this functionality? And excuse me, that got people interested in talking to us, but the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the revenues weren't huge. There wasn't a lot on the line if things went sideways, not like today, right? Nothing we did was mission critical. It was just interesting. And I learned a lot about how things work. Actually, today, it's funny when I'm interviewing people and God, I've interviewed no fewer than six, 700 people in my career for different roles of different levels of technical acumen. And oftentimes, I'll ask somebody in an interview to, 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 to explain to me how the internet works. Just explain it to me in your own words. And it's funny how many people who are looking for jobs in the digital realm can't do that. They can't give you a cogent 
uh, description on how the internet works. And that's because not a lot of people came up through the grassroots where there weren't web platforms to do a thing or there weren't frameworks developed. You had to do it all from scratch and doing it from scratch meant you got down a few layers and you actually understand how things come together. And that's what's really helped me in my career. Having this foundational understanding of how things work has helped me get to where I am today, even though the people that I surround myself with now are far superior to me in terms of their skills and capabilities and whatever it is that they do. Having that kind of working knowledge from the grassroots of the internet has really helped me kind of stay relevant and and current, you know? That's really cool. Yeah. That, Mm -hmm. um, just how the internet actually works isn't something that I ever really put that much thought into until yeah. we actually had Tim Berners-Lee, inventor of the web yes. on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, cool. um, yeah. And then on a later episode, we had one of the co-founders of Stellar, the cryptocurrency payment yep. network. Yep. And uh, Joel, Joel's doing that interview and he brought up that we just had the inventor of the internet on the podcast. And the guy who founded Stellar was like, no, no, you didn't. He invented the web. And then he went through like a very detailed explanation yeah. of the internet and all Absolutely. the layers. Yeah, yeah no, the <laughs> World Wide Web and the internet are two diff- very different things, right? It's all function yeah. of protocol. And, and this is the stuff, you know, and, and it's funny, depending on who the person is when you're interviewing them and you ask them that question, the, the look of death kind of washes over their face. <laughs> but it's similar to, you know, and again, we don't expect people to be network engineers, but I wouldn't take my car to a mechanic that a working explanation of an internal combustion engine, right? Uh, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, again, interfaces and platforms, again, have made very complicated stuff kind of trivial. And if you want to be on the, in the agency world or the advanced analytics world or somewhere where you're claiming to be able to come in and solve problems, then I think you need more than just an interface working knowledge of what's going on if you want to be credible in those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Like troubleshooting is requires such a further depth of knowledge mm-hmm. than absolutely. Like operating yeah. something. But so tell me about where you're at today. Uh, right. Is it DAC group or DAC group? How do you? It's DAC. It's a, uh, it's an initial, it's a, uh, it's an initialism, not an acronym. So uh, I like to educate people on the differences of those just because it's a fun <laughs> little grammatical trivia. The, yeah, so DAC group, and I've been fortunate enough to be um, with the agency since 2008 um, when I was introduced to Norm, the CEO, and uh, through, through my network and sort of came on as uh, one of the instigators of sort of our, di- our own digital transformation. How were we going to go from being a a uh, long, uh, um, you know, successful uh, Yellow Pages advertiser, Yellow Pages agency, uh, and then pivot to digital. And he had the foresight to understand, you know, in the early 2000s that the Yellow Pages medium was going away rapidly and the internet was going to usurp that entire position. And then sure enough, it did. And, you know, the, the all the competitors we had when I joined the agency are all gone. And, uh, you know, we persist and have grown from strength to strength and become, you know, quite a player in the uh, performance digital marketing space. Um, And then more recently, we've taken our analytics practice that I established probably back in 2011 or 12. We got our first sort of, I was the web analyst until I wasn't. And then we got somebody in to do a better job than me and grew it from there. And we've grown that into quite a quite a practice. And that's sort of where the Prove Intelligence brand has come from, where we've established inside DAC as a dedicated analytics center of excellence. 
a secondary brand and we focus purely on um, you know, advanced analytics, data science, integrated business intelligence and marketing technology um, that really drives a lot of the measurement that goes on in the digital business. And, uh, and so we act as out of the internal analytics department for DAC and every client that we touch. Plus we'd work exclusively with other clients as an analytics uh, service provider directly. Uh, and that gives us access to all kinds of experiences and uh, really uh, exciting project work that that uh, that we get to have a real influence on on the way those businesses use their data. Well, DAC's like always been ahead of the curve on analytics, right? Weren't you guys first to do um, like tracking on how those yellow pages ads performed? Right. Yeah. So we did, uh, we call it RCF remote call forwarding, which is really just an IP based phone number. Or oh, back then it wasn't, it was actually done on the PSTN where they would switch a phone number from one to the other. So we would, something as trivial as putting a different phone number in a yellow pages ad than you have as your main phone number so that you can track calls to that number and attribute them to your investment in the yellow pages. It sounds like laughably trivial by today's standards, but that was real revolutionary stuff back in the day that helped bring some sort of tangible ROI to the investment people were having in the directory space. As you fast forward now, you know, call tracking uh, is a, it's a whole industry, right? And uh, there are a lot of players. We partner with a few very big ones and, uh, and what you can do with the telephone, uh, especially with the mobile revolution, uh, it's it's quite fascinating how you can get really detailed attribution for all types of marketing activities um, using the telephone, either through you know IP-based communication or traditional telephony. But yeah, it's fun. Write down keyword level stuff and um, you know personalized uh, personalized events that can help you understand what triggered people to actually place that phone call or engage with you, uh, all, th- all using the phone. It's really a fascinating space. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I remember I also read that, um, you guys were putting QR codes in, in yellow pages, <laughs> yeah. like way before it was way, way before COVID, way before everybody I'm telling you, man, <laughs> we were, we were, pro- I was pro QR code for the longest time. And I was told, often that it's it's stupid and it's a waste but now i'm telling you i think they're here to stay now that's that's for sure but yeah we actually did we ran a few yellow pages ads back in the day that when mobile was starting to get a told uh right around the first iphone and second iphone generations where we pop, popped a qr code that could that could uh you know link you out to a landing page that we could then directly attribute to that yellow pages ad again um and again did we get a ton of traffic nope it, was that a was that a really meaningful contribution? Did it save the yellow pages? It sure didn't, because that's long gone now, <laughs> and uh, we're certainly onto much more sophisticated things. But it uh, it was definitely you know it's kind of it's it's a good representation of kind of who we are organizationally. Is like doing interesting new things to try to find if there's a way to sort of crack the crack the code or break the mold a little bit to to give to give meaning to the, to the effort that we're doing, because ultimately that's what our clients care about. They care very much about, you know, what is, what have you done for me lately? What, what is the return going to be on this thing? And is out of the decisions you're making the right ones. And uh, we want to be able to prove that. And if we're wrong, then we want to know, and we want to move on to something different. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the people that are in first definitely get the highest returns on any new trend. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. But 
So tell me what is like the problem that companies are having that they, that makes them go to you today? Like, and that th- they're looking for a solution. Yeah. And I, I'll probably th- talk to you about that. I think more in terms of sort of the proven intelligence brand, because that's really where personally I see, you know, the, the most exciting part of our business right now. And, uh, and the big opportunity, uh, not only for us uh, organizationally, but for the people, the clients that we're working with and the stories that we have to tell. I think people getting their head around, everyone's been talking about, you know, data activation. We've got to use our business data, our historic business data to help make tomorrow's decisions, right? I have this slide that I put into some of my presentations that says, uh, most companies use their data the way a drunk person uses a lamppost. And that is to say <laughs> for support rather than illumination, right? That's the, that's the quote. So, um, and I think when you break that down, you know, anybody can get any data set and pivot it to tell a story that makes whatever decision they made last week seem plausible, right? It's like, hey, we did this thing and look, it ain't so bad, right? But in order to take that same data set and help it give you an idea or a to, to, to make a better decision for what happens tomorrow and sort of illuminate a path forward. I think that's where a lot of organizations are struggling right now is to bring all of that information together and have the technical acumen to be able to do that, but also the business discipline to be able to say, okay, we've been relying on Bob for 20 years to help us make decision X and Y. And now we've got Bob and all of his experience, which is unbelievably valuable, but we've got all this data that also contributes to the decision-making process. And we should find a way to incorporate that and trust it and test it appropriately and, and, and help improve things that way. And I think that's where uh, we're finding a lot of traction is helping people kind of bring that together. It sounds like, it requires a really humble executive team that is like, they don't, they're able to throw away what they think or their hunches on a moment's notice. If the data says something's wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's a tough. You have to deal with like egos a lot um, within your clients. Well, not so much egos. It's, it's trust. I think the number one thing that's derailed projects for us and our clients opportunity, even people we don't work with prospects that we might talk to and not ultimately work with. I think the number one thing that derails them is trust. They don't believe that the signals that we're relying on are either accurate or complete or comprehensive enough to tell the full story. And sometimes that just gets in the way. And I think the trust is a derivative of maybe just a lack of understanding. Like they did nothing. There's no guarantee. Data science is not about guaranteeing. It's got the word science in it, for God's sake. Like <laughs> science <laughs> is iterative and controlled and arduous and exhaustive. It's not just, it's not magic. It's, it's something that needs to be worked at and understood correctly and having the right people at the table that understand the, the new. I think, uh, I believe in this thing called the conscious competence scale. I'm not sure if you've heard of that, but it's about anyone that learns anything goes through the four stages of yes, conscious yes. competence, right? And I talk about this a lot with my team and uh, with other people I interface with. And I think that critical one of being consciously incompetent is so critical. Like being aware of what you don't know and inviting people around 
that do, and then finding your way to bridge to that conscious competence where you've are, you've learned a new thing, but you're applying yourself to that new thing, and you want to go and explore that. And sometimes I find organizations and certain executives and certain people who are in positions of power and trying to navigate this complicated new world, they might not be so willing to be consciously incompetent and say, "Hey, you know what? This is a space I don't understand. This is a space that's new to me. I know it's important, and I want to make sure I get there." And I, I think that is a huge uh, limiting factor. So I want to, uh, we're, we're talking about like, we're talking really broadly. I want to bring mm -hmm. it down to like practicality. Do you have like any cool case studies that you can share or about engagements where you, your data analytics were able to provide a path forward that the company followed? So this retailer we've been working with for, uh, under the DEC um, banner for a number of years doing their media and their marketing. And they actually had a data science team that worked on, and most companies do have a data science team now, big company, you know, sizable organizations. And there's Purdue grads in there. And I remember actually before one of the meetings, almost like, yeah, I'm not a Purdue grad of data science at all. <laughs> and uh, so I was a little intimidated actually before I met these people. But as soon as I did, as soon as I met them, I'm like, ah, oh, now I understand why they need us. I knew right away because of, of all their academic, of all, of all their capabilities and academic skill, they really didn't know how to connect what they were doing into sort of business material business outcomes that were going to influence the bottom line of this company. They knew how to do a regression model all day long, right? Or any number of other models they could do, but they didn't really know how to carry the conversation through to how it could influence the business. And that's where we really stepped in to help. So we were able to, um, to work with this brand to look at their customer data, great customer data platform. We took a pass at that it was a little too generic. So we went a layer deeper and we pulled every transaction from every point of sale system they had made in the last 10 years and hundreds of millions of rows of data. And our team got to sort of cleaning this and engineering features within this data that were meaningful to the business. And ultimately we created customer profiles or customer segments rather than going through this sort of aspirational persona development thing using market research to say, who are the different kinds of customers and who are the different types of people and how are they going to interact with your brand and how, how are they going to respond to your message? We said, you've got 10 years of actual stuff going on here. And here's what it tells us about your customer base in excruciating detail. And we were able to build out these personas that they were extremely excited to see. The data science team were very excited. I mean, we took them through the the, the detail, the math of it all, uh, how we arrived where we arrived. But the executive team and the marketing team, we 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 were we went in and presented this, and there was a huge boardroom full of people from product development and from um, uh, real estate for their uh, and from merchandising from all corners of the business. They brought them in to hear this thing because what we had to say kind of infiltrated the inner workings of their business and these persona segments that we created for them became sort of staples in their internal taxonomy. Uh, so the, when they were developing a new product, they were developing it for Maria. Why? Because 
it, it, it was red and it was small and it was going to go into this part of the world, part of the country first uh, geographically. They, would, they, would, they re-merchandised some of their retail stores based on our findings to put different color palettes in to different stores primarily because they knew that the data suggested that the people in that particular area were more susceptible to a, a blue color than a red color. They launched purple products on a Thursday rather than a Tuesday. Like these things actually happened downstream from the work that we did. Uh, and they were able to see sort of measurable upticks in the key performance indicators that mattered to their business through the application of, of, of the insights and the findings from the work that we did. So that's one that we, and we still work with this company today and we do a variety of different things for them. But this model that we built uh, and these, you know, this process for understanding the transaction data and categorizing their their customers and um, and learning from them uh, is persistent uh, to this day. And so it's very interesting to see how that's evolved. That's really cool. Yeah, because I know like traditional marketing segmentation you do with whatever census data or Gartner data that you buy or whatever, but that's just kind of a, a blurry outline of what you could be using if you had mm -hmm. 10 years of your own data. Absolutely. To... <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's, if you've got that asset, like put it to use, like bring it together. Like we also actually, it's funny you say that like the third party and the external data also super relevant because yeah. from an acquisition point of view, if I'm looking to, if I'm looking to grow my customer base and I want to find more people that look like this customer group, or I want to uh, find more people in this part of the country that has these socioeconomic factors that affect it, then I need to look beyond my own walls to get insight and relevance and information from other sources. So we actually used our data and our segments that we created became the basis for third-party research. So we put real-world descriptors around them, and we went and found those people in all of these other data subscriptions that we have. And we built, we built sort of detailed personas on top of this data-driven stuff for the marketing group so that they could understand them. But internally, like the understanding of the actual customers based on their actual business variables and features, that was good enough for the internal teams to do what they needed to do. So it really did create this sort of springboard into various parts of the organization. And uh, and again, that's something that we've, uh, we've referred to it. We've leveraged similar tactics and the techniques that we developed in that engagement for other clients. And again, that's a part of the value that we try to offer is that we're never starting from scratch. With anything that we're doing ever, we're never starting from zero. Whereas some companies that might hire a data scientist and try to go it alone, they're kind of starting from the, the ground floor, right? Yeah, absolutely. So tell me about the, the Prove Intelligence Outcome Accelerator, just because I saw it and it sounds like a really cool name. I don't know what it is. Uh, yeah, so actually, that's a really interesting. That's something that we're we're actually reframing. So what that was, it's really about. Remember the point I made earlier about trust in in terms of hamstringing uh, hamstringing a data project. People don't trust the data. They're not going to do anything with it. They're not going to want to do anything. And I think that uh, outcome accelerator is really was our sort of. It started off as sort of an operating framework where we wanted to execute every project through these sort of four categories. And it sort of evolved more to an ethos because as our portfolio has broadened and the type of work that we're doing, it's become sort of 
a thing that we hang on the wall. And it means that it doesn't matter what we're doing, whether we're doing a data pipeline thing for an integrated dashboard, whether we're doing a complicated engineering and data science project like the one I just explained, or whether we're deploying a analytics platform and a marketing technology stack to help you know, add to the data set for a particular customer. That these sort of four things that we call analytics imperatives are, have to be at the forefront all the time. And they are trust, meaning you have to be able to believe that the data is going to be accurate and we need to do what we need to do to let everybody know that it's accurate. The second one is perception. Data, data and analytics is a highly cognitive space. It's can sometimes blind people that don't love it and they just glaze over. So we have to make it perceptive, right? And we need to make sure that people understand and perceive what we're talking about. So communicating at different levels, making sure people are really enrolled in what we're doing and not just nodding along blindly. So uh, perception is this sort of second pillar of our uh, accelerator. The third one is intelligence. So we have to use you know, state-of-the-art methods uh, and approaches to actually doing the work. So uh, great machine learning tools, great engineering and statistical modeling methodology that really gives scientific uh, rigor to what we're doing. And then ultimately, the last imperative is uh, is influence, we call it. And that really is about do we know what we're going to change in the business when we're all done? Because if we're just doing all of these great reports and doing all this great analysis, it's just going to become a very expensive spreadsheet at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have to have a plan from the beginning about how are we going to use this to influence the business and ultimately drive some sort of measurable outcome um, that's going to be meaningful to the people that we're working with. And if and we found from our experience that if we check those four boxes, those four imperatives are always in the conversation, then we have tremendous success. We get everybody enrolled, we move things forward, we do good work, and everyone's happy. So trust perception, intelligence, and influence are those sort of four imperatives that we focus on. That's really cool. Yeah. They're, um, and again, like I said, we've evolved that a little bit. We used to have a little bit more uh, last year. We had a more wordy explanation for that and we've simplified it to those four imperatives. And that's what I was just double checking that I had the language right because I'm so used to the original version of that. Um, but people really respond to that and they, uh, they recognize the difference between, um, you know, vendors that come in and say, Hey, my platform's going to solve all your data problems <laughs> because they want you to implement something. And they think that that'll be it to like an agency or a analytics partner like us that wants to work at the table and make sure that we're going to move things forward appropriately and be accountable for the outcome. Ultimately, that's what we're trying to sell our clients is a number, a, an improvement of a number over time. That's what we're selling them. The work is just the medium to get us there but the work itself doesn't have value. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I saw that DAC group also has a podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I can. Uh, so my very good friends and, uh, and, and brilliant colleagues, um, Nasser uh, Salul, who runs our strategy and insights group, and, our, uh, and Jenna Watson, who runs our media department, which is a massive operation. And she's, uh, she's awesome at that. Uh, the three of us get together once a month uh, and pick a topic that's sort of relevant to what we're feeling in our industry, in our business. And we'll sort of go deep on that and we'll bring guests in from time to time. It's called Inside the Funnel. 
Um, we're in our sort of second full year of that now, and we're having a lot of fun uh, doing that. And sometimes the topics are played out, are like laid out well ahead of time, and we research them. Whereas the one I think we did in December, um, we said we should do a what do we think is going to happen next year episode. And then an hour later, we jumped on and recorded it. And it was actually one of the better ones because it was super like natural and unscripted. It was like the first time we'd had a conversation about it. We did one about the metaverse as well. Um, oh, nice. Similar similar type of thing where it was, it was literally the first time the three of us had had a conversation about that topic since Facebook rebranded and everything happened. So we captured our kind of initial uh, thoughts and reactions and idiosyncrasies um, without any rehearsal whatsoever. And it was actually a lot of fun. So yeah, that's uh, definitely something we enjoy doing. That's awesome. Mm. So what, what do you, how do you define like what the metaverse is going to be like, because oh, there's, I, I feel like there's such a spectrum between like some cheesy Sims like world where we have avatars that we're moving around with our mouse or like <clears throat> uh, an AR on top of the real world. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Like, what, what, how do you define it? How do you think it will look when it takes off or if it takes off? Well, there's a couple of things. And again, if anyone's interested in this, I would invite them to, to listen to our Inside the Funnel episode on the metaverse because we do cover a lot of those topics. But I think in a nutshell, there's a couple of things that I would say to that. One, I think people need to understand that the metaverse is a, con is a, is a concept rather than a construct. So yeah. it's not one organization that will have, it's like, it's a metaverse. There will be a metaverse and it will be interoperable um, and it will run largely on decentralized sort of Web3 computing, which will democratize, you know, the access and the ownership and the governance and even the growth of, of that platform. Um, I think, and that's where I think Facebook's announcement confused a lot of people because they were like, oh, Facebook owns the metaverse. Although that's not true at all. Like <laughs> that's, they're just trying to, they're just doing a bit of a land grab. They were getting in early trying to become the Kleenex of the metaverse, right? So tissues are tissues, but everyone calls them Kleenex because of great branding and great timing. And I think there's something to be said for what's going on there. But fundamentally, Nasser made a really interesting point that I've reflected on, um, that he borrowed some readings from, I can't remember who it was, but I'll, we'll have to uh, look it up. But basically saying that there needs to be a reason. People play, my kids come down and mess with the settings on my computer here because they want to play Fortnite. And they get on and they immerse themselves in this thing, but there's a reason for doing it. People play Minecraft because there's a reason for doing it. Minecraft became so much more than it was ever developed to be, right? It was just originally a game, but it's become a computer programming platform and a socializing platform and a challenge thing and a whole sub-genre of YouTube and Twitch streaming and entertainment. And it was just meant to be a game. Um, but the, all of those things existed and persisted because there's a reason everyone does it. And I think saying that the metaverse will exist simply because technology will allow it to is a step below what the reason for people to actually engage with it is going to be. And I think when we look at 
some of the monetization objects that are working in that space at the moment with NFTs and um, cryptocurrencies and that whole Web3 space, I think is going to drive some of the reason for people to be in there. So NFTs to a normal person are a speculative investment vehicle at the moment, at best, I think. Whereas <laughs> in a metaverse where it gives you access to some experience or some uh, opportunity to be a representative of some community, I think that's where the, the, the reason for them existing is going to land with more people once it can be put into that sort of context. So I do think it's going to happen. It's not a, it's a, it's a, it's a when rather than an if. We actually spoke a lot about the difference between augmented reality and virtual reality and how the metaverse has a role in both. And I think that distinction yeah. is lost on some people as well. You know, the virtual reality is that real. I need a reason. I've got to put on an Oculus headset and cut myself off from the world like Ready Player One style. And I need a reason to do that. Like, why am I doing that? Is it for entertainment? Is it for, for what? I need to understand that. But augmented reality is something where I can absolutely see the metaverse and some overlay to the real world. We talked about as media buyers, we're always looking for new mediums and channels and ad unit uh, opportunities to get higher performance or fallow ground where maybe the demand is low. So they're cheap, relatively speaking, but so we'll jump on it early, but think about, you know, in the grocery store with your Google glass on, which maybe the new version of that, that is, wasn't not going to be such a failure. And <laughs> as you're walking down the grocery aisle, your shopping list and your preferences are preloaded against your account connected to your glass overlay display. And as you look towards a product, you're presented with a contextual offer for that product that might be holographically imposed over the real thing that you can claim in real time in the store, right? And if that's not like an absolute layup for this concept of like making the metaverse have purpose in the real world and giving a reason for people to engage with it, uh, then I don't know what is, but I really think that that's an exciting opportunity for brands that, you know, want to, you know, find their place in this emerging space in a way that's going to be meaningful to them in the real world. Yeah. And, uh, as someone that's like interested in marketing and marketing tech, that's really exciting, but also as a consumer that walks around the world we live in, I have this nightmare vision of ads surrounding me in physical space. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like right. that sounds terrible. If it, that's that's right. where it goes. <laughs> but think about that. But then that's where, you know, the, the irony is so much of this is happening at the very same time that massive um, reductions to the accessibility of data are being imposed through an enhanced privacy laws and privacy legislation. The thing you just mentioned being a real threat you know, third-party cookies and third-party data signals are going away next year sometime, right? Mm -hmm. So anybody that's relying on data being augmented from other partners and third-party people, they're going to have to rethink the way that they're putting their profiles and their uh, their data sets together. All of, all of what we're trying to build here is happening when all of that stuff is on the decline. So think about what the actual application of that would be like, you would have to have control, right? For this to work, you would right. have to be able to say, you know, I'm Adam and I 
I'm not interested in being overwhelmed with this, but I am interested in this, this, and this only. And then that's all you should receive, right? Whereas other people, I'm because I'm a marketer and a data guy, I'm the guy that clicks allow, allow, allow on my phone all the time. When my app says, this app would like to track you across that, I'm like, yeah, sure, track me. I don't care. Go. Track, track, track. Yes. Because <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm like... I know what I'm giving up and I know that the utility that it offers me is worth it. Right. And I'm fine with it. So I'd probably have a different experience than you will. And that's what makes it so awesome is that, you know, these rules are being put in place to protect people like you and I, while this technology erupts around us, when those two things come together, I think it could be a really high utility, low impact, not overly invasive world if it's all implemented properly and i'm sure it won't be at some point but some of it will <laughs> some of it will and uh yeah i'm super excited you know 10 years from now the conversations we're going to have are going to make this exchange seem a pedestrian i believe right um i get a lot of my context and inspiration for stuff just from other episodes of this podcast, because this is kind of my everyday world. Mm -hmm. um, and recently we had on this company called Spot um, that they uh, work with companies to reduce their cloud costs by like allocating their cloud compute to happen at times where it's cheaper to for to, that to happen. Sure. Um, and like off-peak electricity. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, and they can cut costs by like 80 to 90%. It sounded really cool, right. but, um, their CTO, Kevin was saying, um, when, when Joel and him were talking about leadership, that one of the hardest parts about moving into executive leadership is being hands-off, um, <sighs> especially when you've been an individual contributor before Damn. and, so I wanted to hear if you had any advice for being hands-off and working through people rather than through your fingertips. And well, <laughs> it's, you know, it's funny that you asked me that question and we we didn't set this up ahead and I was not prepared for it, but I had this exact conversation with somebody just this morning about like the, the challenge with that. I'm, I think I'm a unique version of that. Maybe. It's a very interesting topic. I've always been pretty good at all of this stuff, but I've never been like unbelievably the best in the room at any of it, if that makes sense. Right. I've always had like a natural affinity for computing and databases and applications and networks and all the stuff that makes everything we're talking about here today work. Um, because my career path has put me in a position where I've had to just work it out. I had formal training that was kind of tangentially relevant to what we do today, but it was old and not really there. And then I've had to sort of make my way through experiences and listening and learning. And I, so I've never really, while I've often felt like, you know, people are looking to me to solve the problem. I, I never felt like, you know, this is the thing I do. So when I stop doing it, I'm going to have feel this detachment from it. I felt like I'd kind of do all of it. And then I quickly learned that having that foundational understanding, like we discussed earlier, um, was a powerful asset because then I could identify the who the real champions were. Who's really good at this? 
right? And I could tell right away if they were excellent at it. And I would put both hands on them as quickly as possible and get them close to me so that I could represent a, like better outcomes. I could have we could, I, I could do better work if I was surrounded by people who were way better at stuff than I was. So I actually found it easier and kind of a natural evolution to get into the leadership and management of this stuff rather than the actual doing. So the challenge I had with that is maintaining a feeling of relevance. As the people around me got smarter, I had a man working for me a couple of years ago who had a PhD in distributed systems. I mean, talk about a niche discipline. The dude was just an absolute wizard when it came to distributed computing. And we needed his skills for a very particular thing. And I found myself in a conversation with him one time where we started to debate an approach to something. And I immediately felt like, what the hell are you doing? You have no nothing to offer in this <laughs> conversation. <laughs> um, but I helped the guy in the moment because I helped him see the consequences of what we were trying to do from a position where he had no experience about like the way executive at our client that we were talking about would perceive what we were doing didn't factor into his decision making at all initially but then it did and then that helped us find a better outcome so i was able to kind of bring that experience in so i've i've personally found it easier than others i've spoken to to sort of be the hands-off rope puller you know, the problem is I only get told when there's a problem to solve. I'm never really in the solution. Although just the last couple of days, we just launched a big project yesterday. And I spent a great deal of time yesterday actually hands-on helping people solve a thing because it's something that I'm particularly experienced at. So that was, that was fine. And I loved it because I got to get my hands dirty. But in the main, um, I think this is a decision a lot of people who are in this space and who strive to be leaders need to sort of reconcile in their own mind. Are you willing to not be the guy or the girl anymore and back away from that in order to make room for people who are going to be better than you? They're going to be freshly educated with curriculum that is representative of a more modern time. They're going to bring that academic knowledge and capability and maybe enthusiasm to the table that you're not going to have. And then your job is going to be to nurture that and apply what they can't learn at school. And that's how you help them sort of move forward. So it's a really good question. And a thing that we, in, in the technical space, we navigate that all the time. And I've seen tremendous engineers with terrific talent just fail flat when you put a team underneath them. And then you quickly back that up and say, you just keep being you in the corner and keep doing great work. And we'll take care of all of this other people's stuff. And you just keep churning out amazing product. And then I've seen mediocre engineers and developers or technical people really thrive when they're in a position where they can get their arms around a group of people and inspire a group of people to a common goal. My job is to try to work out who's who and which way is everyone going and how best can we, you know, put everyone in the position to succeed the most. Yeah. I mean, that, that is absolutely the, the job of a leader, just mm -hmm. empowering those that, that can do a better job and uh, letting them run. Mm -hmm. Do you have any like tips for getting out of like a mental slump? Like every day just slowly starts to feel like a slog. And, you know, if you just keep working every day and not, you don't get any space to just step away, it's probably going to continue. Mm -hmm. How do you create healthy boundaries and space from work in order to get mm -hmm. back to normal and back to your A game? Yeah, that's, I mean, 
look at what's happened the last two years. Like everybody has invited their work into their home. Doesn't matter what you do. Like we've invited the erasure, uh, the you know the, the the blurring of those lines through necessity initially, and now just through sort of repetitive behavior. Um, I mean, listen, you get to a certain level, your phone's kind of on all the time and you hear a ding and you can't not look uh, because you just care. You're invested in the outcome of what's going on at work. It's not just a paycheck. So that's going to happen for people, for, for a lot of people. But, you know, personally, I find, you know, I deal in the intangible a lot. Um, you know, when we build a platform, we launch it and it works and you click the thing and the thing does what it's supposed to, or we run the model and we get great outcomes and then we execute, make decisions on those outcomes and we get better results. It's all good and real, but you can't touch it and you can't stick it on a shelf and you can't like, you can't work with it the same way. So I actually personally find sort of escape in like tangible technical things. So, you know, my home office here doubles as my sort of project hobby room. And as I look around the room, I'm surrounded by, you know, microcontrollers and electronics and soldering stations and a laser cutter and a 3D printer and a, uh, you know, a plotter and a big mess actually, as I now look around. Um, and that's <laughs> the stuff that, you know, it exercises the same part of my brain that solving a data modeling problem solves. But I, there's a physical outcome at the end of it and the thing works or well, the idea that I had, I'll design it on CAD and then I'll print it on my 3d printer and I'll, I'll put it into action wherever I needed the solution and I'll see it. And I get a tremendous sense of gratification from that. So I, I always encourage people to find a passion. The book, uh, how Google works, they say passionate people don't use the P word and that's, Great. Like find a, a, a demonstrated passion in something that you can just do and it doesn't feel like work and it's fun. And it's, uh, it's the kind of thing that can make you forget a long day or re-energize you with like the, the ability to get back into whatever's going on during your day job the next morning, even though it might be in the same room on the same table, um, but feel a little bit more energized about it because you've broken it up with something that's more tangible than what you normally do. Actually, I did, I got a chance when we did a series of sort of the executive team at DC, we put together a series of like zoom things to just sort of, you know, somebody did a cooking thing and somebody, and I did a CAD modeling thing, right? I don't, we don't do that at work, but people were interested in it. So we all got in front of a, a bunch of people got on thing and I taught them how to do basic, the basic principles of doing CAD modeling to design something on the computer in 3d. And then talked about the workflow to bringing that to life on a 3d printer and stuff. And people were just fascinated by that and interested in it. But some people just don't know how to get started with anything like that. And I find that, uh, you know, trying to be a resource for those people to help them sort of get started is another part of the job sometimes. But yeah, I don't know. Hopefully we'll get back to some delineation between what is home and what is work in a more normal setting soon. And then that will make uh, the answer to that question much easier to answer, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That That is the big challenge, sitting at the same desk before yeah. and after hours, absolutely. before, during and after. Yeah. <laughs> what is a piece of advice you received like early on in your career that has just continued to serve you well throughout? I think, yeah, oh, there's so much. I mean, if I might, our CEO, Norm and I, we talk frequently business and 
personal and development and very similar to the conversation we're having today. And he and I, our relationship has evolved and uh, developed over 13 years, as you could imagine. And, uh, you know, he's taught me a tremendous amount about leadership and about, you know, managing my own personal blind spots. I think that's when you're used to being kind of the jack of all trades and the guy that can get it all done. Like it's back to that conscious competence thing, being like being okay to say that this thing that we're dealing with or this thing that's been put in front of me is not my forte and I don't have a lot to draw from on it. So I'm going to say I need help. I'm going to say I really need uh, somebody who knows more about this to come in and help me do it. Um, you know, when it's, when it's inside my field of expertise with to do with technology or technical development or data, I never have a hard time. I never really had a hard time saying, Oh, I don't know. I don't understand about that, but I know that, you know, Bill does or Jason does or whomever. I, so I can bring them in. But when it was about a topic where I wasn't as confident, I often resisted getting help because I felt that I had to work it out just like I've worked everything else out. And I think running up against some of the consequences of me doing that and then hearing the feedback and saying, oh, actually, maybe you do need to sort of stop and listen and look elsewhere for input on those things that you're maybe not quite as good at. I think that served me well. It was tough to hear at the time. And then, of course, you absorb that and uh, you then put it into practice and you see the results and you say, oh, actually, that was pretty good. That's a pretty good outcome this time. I should use that next time. Uh, and then it starts to become a natural behavior. And then I start to hear myself giving that advice to people who are looking to me for guidance as well now and trying to help them through the same sort of uh, transformation. So, you know, without giving Norm too much of a, of a big head, if he happens to listen to this, <laughs> I would say that, you know, having that experience with a man like him, with his experiences, uh, and then, you know, being able to reflect on that now is probably the strongest piece of advice that I find myself going back to more often than, than anything else. That's awesome, man. Mm. Well, before we, before we call it on the day, anything you want to, you want to draw some extra attention to shout out, um, at DAC or prove intelligence. You know, I've worked a variety of different places over the last 25 years. And I think what's ke what, what keeps me for 13 years at a place like DAC amidst, you know, this space, there's a lot of opportunities, a lot of things going on in a space like this. And if, if you were interested, you could jump around and get all sorts of experiences is that there's a level of skill and competence and camaraderie between the people that we work with that we get to bundle up and, you know, drop into the boardrooms that we sit in with the clients that we work with and have like really meaningful impact. And I think that's, you know, for anyone that's in this space looking for, you know, digital marketing partners and looking for and support with analytics. There's so many people. There's so many people you could go to. There's such a crowded space. You could, you can go on Upwork or Fiverr and find independent contractors that are probably very talented. You could find massive holding company firms or consulting company, consulting companies to come and work with you. But you know, when you look at an organization like ours, there's there's this harder to define element that we bring into the room that is just helping us crush it. Like we're killing results across the board uh, in so many different verticals. Uh, and that has a lot to do with the tenure and the personalities of the people that sort of show up. 
when we when when we do the work. Uh, and the core team that I've seen grow and change, and people come and people go, but there's this core nucleus of like talent and commitment to to what we're doing that has just persisted. Uh, and it's a really powerful asset. And I think that you know the people that have worked with us for as long as they have would would uh, would agree. So. I urge anybody who's in that space to reach out to us and, uh, you know, um, if for no other reason, just to have a conversation about what's going on in your business and to see if there's uh, a fit. Uh, and often there uh, isn't, and sometimes there is. Uh, and either way, um, you know, we're good people and we really, really like uh, talking about this stuff. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.